0: Kiwi late, it's going to be close here, Kiwi's going to beat them all with a mighty run.
1: Piping Lane races up the man takes the lead in the cup, out wide is
0: guns in stormy Seas, but Piping Lane's going to win the cup. But it's Doremus nicely clear in the Melbourne Cup, he's got the cup one, he's holding nothing like a Dane, and Doremus wins the cup. Rain Lover and Olsopp, they're going head and head, Rain Lover on the inside, Rain Lover's got his neck in front and won by a neck. Champagne and Jessabeel, Champagne, Jessabeel fighting back, Jessabeel, Champagne. Finally they hit the line Jasper wins the cup from Champagne but a champion becomes a legend The Cody Debra won it American Trevian.
2: celebrating Australia's greatest race the history of the Melbourne Cup
0: Helion coming from the clouds on the outside rising fast is too far in front however and in the run of the post rising fast going to win the Melbourne Cup by two legs from Helion Right fingers goes to Zima they hit the line locked together dead eat A dead eat in the Melbourne Cup, Seema and Light Fingers, Rain Lover's eight lengths in front, going further away, and Rain Lover wins the Melbourne Cup by ten lengths.
2: Here's Brian Martin. Hello and welcome to the history of the Melbourne Cup. Today's story is one of bravery and sheer determination. It's the story of a great racing comeback. Wayne Harris and the cup winner of 1994, Jean.
0: Umpala with a run, but Jern hit the front, Jern out by two lengths to Paris Lane, Elko double take, Umpala, Jern the leader though, Jern in front of Paris Lane, he's got a two length break, Umpala the outside, it's Jern still in front, he's two lengths clear, he's holding them, and Jern's going to win the Melbourne Cup by two lengths to Paris Lane, Umpala a half ahead away third.
2: Our guest turned 60 on December 17th this year, and the young man from Musselbrook in New South Wales has a wonderful story to tell. Welcome. And hello to Wayne Harris. Wayne, how are you?
3: Hello, Brian. Lovely to speak to you again.
2: Oh, fantastic to talk with you. Um, some wonderful memories there. It's back in 1994, 26 years ago.
3: My word, 60 years of memories. Little <laughs> boy from Musclebrook. And uh, to get to the hype that I did was just uh, unbelievable. But dreams are free, aren't
2: they? Yeah, they certainly are. And uh, I'm going to talk about what you've actually endured uh through your, your time in, in racing but let's talk about the good times. Your first uh, win was on the 2nd of November 1976 Melbourne Cup Day and it was at Musselbrook uh, on a horse called Duke of West Point for uh, a great trainer, Pat Farrell.
3: Yeah, he was my master uh, back in the day there and uh, Melbourne Cup Day always seemed to, I didn't realise at the time but I think it took about 13 rides for me to ride my first winner and we had four runners in the race that day and Oh, Drickle West Point never went down in the annals of all-time greats. And uh, he was the outsider of our four on that occasion. And I, I used to ride him track work, and he was a good old safe ride for me. And he got out in front, and they never caught him. And you wouldn't believe it. There was my first winner after 13 rides. And just a week later, same four horses went around again. Same story. He got out in front, and they never <laughs> caught him again. So my first two winners were on a an old, uh, lovely old horse called Duke of West Point and uh, started my career off. I was very little when I started off, Brian, and people were saying, oh, you need to build up and get a lot stronger, and then all the falls and injuries and time that I spent off, I um, naturally grew and uh, always struggled my weight sort of um, for most part of my career, but, gee, there's a lot of... um, it was a roller coaster, the great times were great and uh, the, the low times were something you wouldn't want to wish on anyone.
2: Well, when you look at your apprenticeship and uh, the, the wonderful trainer and one of the all-time great trainers of Australian racing, TJ Smith, Tommy Smith, declared you the best apprentice he'd ever seen in the season of 78-79, your champion Sydney apprentice, 73 wins. Again, you did it in 79-80 with 56. 89 wins in the season of 80-81, champion Sydney apprentice. Uh, a total of 558 wins as an apprentice, an Australian record at the time. And it um, it, it sort of it was hard work, as you say, coming coming from Musselbrook, battling and, you know, f- uh, starting out uh, around the bush, but you finally made your way to town. Um, wh- who was your mentor? You, you're writing for Pat Farrell. Um, and there are other people that sort of came into your life at that early stage. Yeah, there was Brian. I was pretty lucky.
3: Um, There's a good... Uh a lot of country jockeys riding up around my area at the time. There was John Wade and um, uh, Arthur Lister, who was a champion jockey, and I had them guys to ride against and a few others, to probably too many to mention. But Hilton Cope had retired, and uh, he had a spilling participant property up in the Hunter Valley there, and he had a shares and a few horses with Pat, and he took me under his wing, and uh, it was a great help for me. He sort of kicked me up the backside he his something he wasn't that happy with. And uh, he, he pat on the back when he, he saw things that he thought, you know, we, um, we were doing right. So I was very, very lucky to have, have Hilton there. you know, Not all the time, but um, when when I was needed, it was really good. So to have someone of his health, being a, a champion doctor himself, who really struggled with his weight, but had great international experience. And uh, when you're listening to the people that uh, saw Hilton right, there was, there was none better.
2: And, and Wayne, you spoke of the... Um Sort of the problems and health issues that you had sort of through your career, and weight didn 't seem it was going to be a problem at the early stages, but it turned out to be probably your greatest opponent, uh, like any jockey who 's taken thousands of race rides through uh, through your time in racing. A lot of mishaps on the racetrack. Um, You've had fall five times. You you suffered from broken ribs, a cracked sternum, a fractured vertebrae, broken left shoulder blade, a smashed nose, a fractured left hip, a right wrist and left shin bone, busted thumb, groin fracture and broken bones in both feet, Uh, partially deaf in in your left ear um, and and a brain tumour in 1983 was diagnosed. Uh, Just backtrack on that. How, How did that come about?
3: Well, I did pretty tough. I was like a good four hours drive. It wasn't much flying in those days. Four hours drive back and forth to Sydney. My boss would never let me stay over um, a night in Sydney. I'd have to come back and ride my track work. He was a, he was a tough boss. He never let me get in, get a, uh, an easy day there anywhere. And uh, I'd drive to a country race meeting. Then there was the city meetings. And I was very proud to be able to win three consecutive apprentice titles in Sydney being based in Musselbrook. And all the driving I was doing and uh, I don't know whether it's, I can't blame being tired or anything like that for a lot of the falls I had. People were saying that I was too careless and things like that but you can't help it when a horse snaps a leg or, or you know, two or three horses fall in front of you and you can't miss them so I don't think a lot of the falls were my fault. It, uh, yeah, but it, it sort of caught up with me. I got over doing the travelling. Uh, Tommy Smith, Buck Cummings, Neville Begg, Theo Green, all sort of after me to get to Sydney, I was being wasted and wasting myself being up in the country. I liked the country lifestyle, but moved to Sydney because I was riding in the group races. I had to be there to ride track work like everyone else. And uh, 12 months after, um, I think I was running the first three in the jockey's premiership year after coming out of my time when I had a couple of bad falls and was feeling very unwell and I was diagnosed with having the, the, the first brain tumour. So that was pretty horrific. Uh, I was told I'd never ride again and uh, really 12 months, I really fought hard to get back in the saddle. I moved back to the country. I based myself at Newcastle with uh, a great mate of mine, Ray Wallace and Max Lees and i come back riding for them. I think my first 17 rides, I 15 winners. It was just the most magical comeback you could ever dream to have and I was back and off and running again and uh, I started my career back off Fairly well there and was offered a contract in Hong Kong with John Moore. Uh, I went over there and did, did, a, did a season there and had a, had a bad fall there and uh, came back to start off again here. So, everywhere, every time I sort of get up on a high, something that happened to sort of drive me back down.
2: So, how did you, um, going through that uh, that rehab and, and surviving a brain tumour, how did you control your weight? Well, the, the, your weight wouldn't have been an issue then. but you wouldn't be concerned about that. It was more about getting back and getting your balance and and getting you know getting back your, your life together. Surely,
3: made, I think as a jockey, you're always concerned about you know your weight. You're always keeping an eye on it and uh, always trying to keep yourself pretty fit. And to come back for that first comeback, I knew there was going to be a lot of eyes on me. I had to go through so much red tape, um, so many doctors they put me through because it wasn't just my health to be worried about the other guys I was going to be riding against. You know they've got to go home to their families as well. So, um, you know that's got to be in the back of your mind and everyone's mind. But to come back with a comeback that I did was just magical. And um, they, yeah, I, I'd been partially deaf in my left ear for like, um, then they found with the brain tumor that might have had something to do with it. But I didn't find until years after, when I had my second brain tumor after I'd won the Melbourne Cup, that I'd had no. They would cut through my balance nerves. Um, to remove the brain tumour, and I had no... My balance down my left side was nearly zero, so my right-hand side was sort of covering from the left-hand side. Sure. So to come back and ride the winners and, and all that type of thing was uh, was something that's just pretty magical. So, um, yeah, to, you know, have the career that I did and have all them, them injuries and illnesses, was um, I think probably my biggest assets or my biggest victories were... Apart from winning the Melbourne Cup and probably the the Golden Slipper as an apprentice, still the youngest, was to come back after two brain tumours and uh, have successful comebacks. And although the second one after winning the Melbourne Cup, the second one come back, I was advised not to ride again because I'd had meningitis and that's when I lost all the um, my hearing in my left ear. They took all, all my ear out actually, and um, so I'm just completely deaf in my left ear now but I was told not to ride again because of the meningitis and I wasn't allowed to heat my body up. So always trying to lose weight, that was always going to be um, a bit of a hindrance to me. And I think i come back and I rode for about four months and then the health just wasn't good enough to keep going. So I had to put the uh, uh, you know, stop to a pretty wonderful career. Uh,
2: extraordinary career. Uh, Wayne, at, at 18, you won the the Golden Slipper. Um, for Bart Cummings, there's been no greater trainer. And that's still a record at 18, it was April 7th, that's my birthday, 1979. And inspired, um, was it inspired, the one that you won on? No, a Darren
3: And he, he was three months older than me, so he broke most of my records Darren. but I still hold that one, the youngest apprentice, I won on Century Miss. I think Bart had won five slippers before Century Miss. Yep. And funny enough, I don't think he ever won another slipper after that. I don't know <laughs> what a genius he was with Melbourne Cups, but I used to joke with him, geez, you better get me back and uh, we win another slipper. And he said, you've got a bit of weight to lose, son.
2: <laughs> uh, uh. Quite extraordinary. And and the, the times overseas, um, Hong Kong, as you, you mentioned, you went there, you had a fall, you broke a hip there in 1985. There was a time, of course, you got to Ireland, rode for one of the great trainers, Kevin Prendergast, in, in 1986 um so you're able to see the world and even a trip across to japan after winning the melbourne cup on june and then going to tokyo and riding in the great race of japan cup when the horse ran well sixth for memory in that year and he he, um, he certainly didn't disappoint but what sort of value did you get out of sort of leaving australia and and sort of spreading spreading your wings globally Right,
3: i just can't believe the education i got i wasn't the Brainiac it's school, to be truthful, but once I got involved with the horses, my interest was just I wanted to be a jockey, that was it. And to be able to travel the world right in 10 different countries at different times was just, just uh, what a wonderful education traveling is. And as you say, I had Hong Kong, I had stints in Singapore, Malaysia, uh went to Mauritius for invitations. Brent Thompson and I went over there and represented Australia, um, Japan after the Melbourne Cup. That was another interesting story. He he, I, I think, should have... I don't know if he would have won, but he should have been a lot closer. There was a terrible interference going past the post the first time. And rough, Abbott with Jimmy Casti and I copped... Uh, I clipped heels and uh, Nelly was unseated out from turn and he ran it for six there and it was a very, very good run. But the next day, um, I'd suffered some internal injuries and uh, I had a very bad um, internal hemorrhage and collapsed on the plane as we were about to taxi had to take off so we had to go back and I was rushed to a Japanese hospital and no one spoke English and uh, Mm. I thought I was going to die there and uh, David Hayes and all the owners and uh, friends of his were on the plane and they patted me on the back and wished me luck. They just wanted to get back to Australia (laughs) so they left me there in Japan and I was in a Japanese hospital for about three or four days so they stabilised me and then I got home and they said the plane would have taken off they wouldn't have been able to land for about another four hours, then I would have been dead with the pressure and all that type of thing, so it's another story. I don't, I don't go looking for all those <laughs> those dramas but they used to send to find me.
2: Just extraordinary, you, you, your survival rate more than anything else, so you don't do things in half measures, do you? Uh,
3: not intentionally, but yeah, I've been um, pretty lucky, brought up in the country, tough. I've got two brothers, we're all very successful at sport, everything we put our hand to, I was a Golden Glove champion boxer, followed my brother in there. I won uh, Rugby League, won uh, Grand Finals with, with football. And we're just all mad, um, like most country country um, kids are. You just get mad into your sport. And uh, there's a lot more things, I suppose, these days with, you know, PlayStations and video games. And we never had that in the old days. So yeah, you just had to you know, go and do your best at sport. And I was very proud, a very proud family of, um, you know, with, with our sport.
2: Wayne, sort of recovering from something and on two occasions you went through this uh, a brain tumour, how many times surely did it go through your mind, uh, you know, what, what am I doing this for, well I mean, even if I survive this, I've got to then battle weight again, you know, I should be walking around 60 kilos and to be competitive uh, in the big I mean, league.
3: every I, yeah. Every day I was in the sauna sweating my backside yeah. off to, I'd go two days without eating and you know, I, I was just, towards the end I was... Probably just to, uh, I was doing um, silly things to, to try to stay in the saddle. But you go to the races, even if it was just a uh, ride a winner for a friend at Newcastle or, or to, you know, ride a double or a treble midweek at Canterbury or something like that, it just um, inspired you to want to go back and do it the next day. You go, oh, not again. And uh, or then you turn around and, and, and win a group race, which is how well that's what it's all worthwhile. So, um, Yeah, I think if I hadn't have been as successful as I was, it would have been a a lot different for me. I think I probably would have been um, maybe looking for another job or or, or, uh, taking out a trainer's licence or something like that.
2: You might have been safer being a boxer.
3: I may have. (laughs) 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 But I might have been starting to get fellas who are a bit better than me too. So
2: Uh. I was
3: very, very lucky. Um, I took to riding like a duck to water. I didn't really come from a a racing family. Uh, A lot of people thought my style... I had a fairly unique style and uh, was always promoted that I was a, um, a pony club champion and things like that, but never, ever stepped foot into a pony club arena. So, um, yeah, I think you've got to have your own style. I was very lucky, I think, Brian, that around the time I had... Uh, well, Malcolm Johnson, was a, he was very stylish, had a lovely style. I had um, Peter Cook, who had the best hands. Uh, Ronnie Quinton was one of the most professional I think I ever rode against uh, with his homework and things like that and a guy like Kevin Langby he was just unassuming the amount of winners that Kevin rode and there was a heap of other jockeys that, around me at the time so I think you take a little bit out of each of those jockeys and try to put it into your own, own style. Uh, I think everyone used to say that I had a sort of unique style myself. I think all the good jockeys you can pick them out in a race with the, their feet on a horse and I was to be very patient and try to make the last bit of the race your best because that's what the winning post is, isn't it? So your timing's pretty well everything. So I was pretty lucky to have the jockeys. Uh, I think even now, uh, at the time, uh, the Mick Dippmans and the Cassidys and uh, all the great jockeys around my time, uh, to have to ride against them as an apprentice, it uh, was pretty pretty hard school there and uh, I, I don't think there was ever a a better school of jockeys um, going around in Australia and Sydney itself.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. When you, you, you mention those names of riders and the upper echelon, the guys that have uh, been there and, and won all the major races, but the, the camaraderie in the jockeys room must be extraordinary because out there in the battlefield, you know, you, you've got a wonderful respect for each other 99% of the time and there are times when things go wrong and you, and you suffer, you, you'll, you'll be penalised accordingly. But um, there's always that safety factor. You're looking out, you know, you, you've got each other's back in your own sort of unique way and I think that's a wonderful thing about racing and particularly this world of, of, of the jockey um, and and so even the advice that can come from those senior to the juniors, the boys or the girls is still as strong as ever, isn't it?
3: That's true. I think it's all more evident now. With the, Back in my day uh, it was pretty hard cutthroat. You had to sort of um, fight for the rides that you had and I wasn't particularly close with any of the, the jockeys in the Sydney jockey room. We had respect for everyone but I never dined out or, or I wasn't a golfer as such. And most of the boys used to play golf to to uh keep their weight down. Well, I'd be out I used to do five hour walks, the uh coastal walk in Sydney nearly every day with sweat jackets on, middle of summer and people thought I was a state from a lunatic asylum, I think. But
0: <laughs> and
3: uh it was probably wasn't until I'd go to Melbourne or go into state, like I'd go to Melbourne and I uh, was good friends with Damien Oliver and we might have a game of golf or we, we'd go out for dinner after the races and Greg Hall and Brent Thompson and I had some very good friends there in Melbourne. Maybe we weren't sort of trying to cut each other's throats for rides, so you got a different type of respect for people there, I suppose, but uh respected every drop you ever rode against because if you didn't, uh, you know, uh might come against you in your next ride, so yeah, a lot of homework goes into not just your rides, but you're watching other jockeys and watching their styles. And if they've got faults or they've got uh, pluses and minuses, I think it, you've just got to know everything. Thanks think my Melbourne Cup, I, I sat back I, for two days after I picked up the ride at the Barrier Draw on Jern. I, I pretty well knew what every jockey's underpants, the colours they were going to be wearing. I, I just knew the colours. I knew where I thought they'd be. And Jern, as you know, was a very difficult horse to ride. And uh, I'd had my homework, knew that they'd taught him to miss the start over in Europe and um, to try to give the jockey some sort of help through the race to to settle him. And he walked out of the barriers with me. And I come out to get on the horse and David said, look, just try to go as easy as you can. You know, he can go a bit hard. And and I said, well, I'm going to try to do this. And he pretty well laughed at me. And and as it turned out, I got to ride him how by accident probably, but he's going to ride how I wanted to, and I think it pretty well won the race
2: for us. Yeah, there's no doubt about that and he he was a quirky horse journey he was an import Um, stunning looking animal, but he uh, he had to try and get him on his day, he won the Underwood that season of 1994 in September he won the Underwood, Rod Griffiths was sort of number one rider at the time with uh, David Hayes, he got beaten in the Caulfield Stakes, just beaten by Rough Habit he failed in the Cox Plate, and, and that was the year that uh, Solvit won the race. And David Hayes says that the horse just didn't turn up. He was a stallion. He just didn't fire. Then he went to the McKinnon. Uh, Griffiths was off him, and Shane Dye took the ride, and he, he just got beaten by Paris Lane. Uh, so the barrier draw that uh, that night on the 29th of October, Derby Day night, how did it come about that you all of a sudden landed on Jeanne? It
3: was sliding doors, isn't it? Yeah. Like, uh... As you say, Jern, I think he took a fancy to the grey party. To <laughs> Terrible time to to uh, work out his sexual preferences and whatever. But then you know, I actually rode in the McKinnon. And Shane, I think, tried to change Jern's style. He tried to get him out of the barriers and put him into a position and give him a dig out of the barriers. And he he went he pulled too hard to to win the McKinnon on that occasion. So Shane had the choice of Coach Wood and Jern, I think, pretty well. And he said to David, i I'll go to the barrier draw and we'll pick whatever draws the best. So as it turned out, Tatra drew eight, Jern drew nine. So I was standing with a glass of champagne in my hand and the, the press asked David who would be riding Jern. He looked across at me and he said, well, that fellow puts down his champagne. He might want to ride him. So <laughs> down went the champagne. And, and uh, yeah, I, I had such a great feeling from, from that moment on because you probably remember Jern was very well Thought of leading up to the Melbourne Cup and to fill those um, couple of failures in the Cox Plate and the McKinnon. so to pick up a ride that's all of a sudden gone from probably you know five or six to one out to twenty to one, and uh, I don't think anyone really thought that he could run the two mile with the habits and as you say the quirkiness of that uh, that, that he had. But my theory was always in a race, and I I, I mentor a few apprentices. Uh, these days and I always tell them try to follow the best horse in the race if not try to follow the best jockeys and on that occasion I was able to follow Jim Cassidy and Darren Beeman well as you know probably two better jockeys you wouldn't find and they weren't on the best horses on the day but gee they rode good races for me so I think that was a big big start to me to be able to um, follow them and and for the the breaks to come my way in that cup.
2: Yeah, well, he uh, he was a brilliant winner and you gave him a, a terrific ride. He got out to 16 to 1 and I recall calling the race and Paris Lane loomed and he and Jernot had some good battles uh, in, in leading up to the Melbourne Cup and he looked as though he was the winner the way he charged, the Caulfield Cup uh, winner and at the 400 metre mark when he joined in. And then I recall going back to the fence and seeing... Those white pacifiers, pacifiers, would have just come into vogue. Uh, Mike Pelling was, I think, the uh, jockey from Queensland and invented the pacifier? Yep. And Jern just charged through. You gave him a terrific ride. We're going to pick up the call now. And uh, this is Jern. uh, This is about 600 metres from home and he was able to uh, to pick you uh, through the field, take you where you wanted to be, and he dashed away for a brilliant win.
0: Top rating is now drifted back in the Melbourne Cup, followed by Starstruck and well back in the race, Paris Lane. They're followed by Impala, Glastonbury, Clevedon, Gale, and major decision. They come down the side in the Cup, and it's pressure time at the 950 metre mark where Gull Sovereign the leader looming up as the bolt and our toll bell to off at the 800 metre crossing, a length for the back, double take. They're followed further back by a presser, River Verdon coming around the outside, further back in the race then, at the head of the others is Vintage Crop. he's starting to improve he's out very deep, he's tracking out wide when they come up towards the turn on the bend they race in the Melbourne Cup, 600 metres to go, double take, took over from Toll Bell, over on the inside, a presser further out, River Verdon, Vintage Crop, and Paris Lane, Paris Lane, look at him come down the outside with a withering run they're followed by Umpala but Paris Lane out in the centre, racing up now to grab Jan who got through from further back, Elko, Vintage Crop can't go on, over on the inside, clear and now Jern. Jern has raced two lengths in front of Umpala and Paris Lane. Jern the import is holding them at bay. It's Jern in front for David Hayes. Two lengths in front of Paris Lane. And Umpala and Jern wins the Melbourne Cup. Jern a length and three quarters, Paris Lane. Ahead further back as Umpala.
2: So Wayne, what was it like? I remember it was a sort of a gloomy sort of day, sort of a bit of overcast day. What was the feeling like? You've gone past the post, you've won the two million dollar, arguably one of the greatest races in the world.
3: Brian, I'd had, I think, two or three Melbourne Cup rides prior to June and they'd run at the wrong end. I'd have ridden horses that were wet trackers that found hard tracks and vice versa. And I think I only went around two horses in the Cup to, yeah. to get the to ride him economically like I did. And the gap comes probably too soon for me as we turned for home, as, as you probably just saw. And to be able to hit the front, I had to go for the, give him a little bit of rain, get through that, that run because it was closing. And if I hadn't have taken it, I wouldn't have run anywhere in the Melbourne Cup. I had to get through and get that cup. But once I got through, I had to just hold him together and sort of switch him off and just hope that I'd had enough, um, I'd have something to fight when they come. So I was pretty lucky. I sat until I could, at the corner of my eye, I could see and hear Paris Lane and Umpala, the place that is coming to make their challenges. So I thought, well, come on, son, you've had a pretty cosy run till now. What have you got? And not having ridden him before, but when I gave him a dig in the ribs and asked him to go, he really, really responded. Which probably entitled to do that as well, although it was a two-mile race. But he'd had—I um, sort of saved him as much as I could in the run, and he, he exploded. And I thought it was going to be a pretty special loss to be able to get past him on that occasion. And the emotions that go through your mind—you um, know, all the ups and downs that I'd had—to think I won a Melbourne Cup is just unbelievable and um, all the dramas bleeding up, and then even after that, so to think towards the end of my career, um, I rode during the next year in the Melbourne Cup, and he used to run with his mouth open. I believe he swallowed a clod on that occasion. He choked down, and I thought he might have even bled, So, and then I had to retire a couple of months after that. So um, pretty lucky, probably, to get away with the Melbourne Cup on my resume before I to retire.
2: And he came back and won the oar at Sandown, first up in brilliant fashion after coming back from Japan. Ran second in the Futurity, second in the Australian Cup, second in the Rand Vets, second in the BMW, uh, and then he won the Queen Elizabeth that uh, Group One for the to finish up that particular season in April of of '95. You retired um, in September of 1998. Gee, it's been a long way, hasn't it, from Cup Day 1976, riding up there in your hometown at Musselbrook, and 22, about 22 and a half years later, the curtain came down. Um, your health now, you, you're still battling, aren't you?
3: I oh, yeah, am, Brian. I've had a, a bit of time in hospital uh, this year. I've had terrible spinal problems. I've had so many procedures, and uh, I'm on crutches at the moment. Uh, I was not a walking stick. Now it's crutches for the last four years, I think. And, uh, well, yeah, it's not looking pretty down the track. But, anyway, I've got to keep fighting it. And, uh, yeah, well, you know... Um, Oh, what do you say? Look, I've had a wonderful career, but geez, you'd, you'd, you'd love to give the um, bad times back, wouldn't you? But to be able to ride over two and a half thousand winners around the world. And, um, you know, um, I've ridden a winner in every state of Australia. And that was one of the main things I wanted to do before I retired. I went to Western Australia for their carnival and won a, a group race, a group two over there and got a few winners. And uh, I had a big contract uh, set up for me to go back to Singapore. And yeah, my health was too bad to go, so there's always something going to pop up, and especially in the wintertime in Australia, with, when you're struggling with your weight, it's always a bit tough, so I always look to go overseas and, and do something over there. Winning the Blue Diamond on my hat and opened the doors for me to go to Ireland for shake ham down, and had great success over there, and I, not the prize money's very big in Ireland, but I was sort of being uh, groomed to go to England, which would have been a pretty good contract for me, and then... I had to come back from Ireland. My father was uh, terminally ill. And instead of going back there, I went back and did a season in Singapore and was thinking about my options. And if I'd have gone back to Europe or to Singapore, I wouldn't have been here in Australia and won on <laughs> and So But as I say, sliding doors, you, just, you know, I've been pretty lucky at times. Some doors are shut in the face, but the ones that have opened have been very, very good for me.
2: Yeah, that's very true. But you're an absolute inspiration. Uh, just to listen to you talk about... Uh, the, the tough times and the hard times, but it's an amazing thing racing. It can pick you up and take you to the top of the mountain. The air is just rarefied up there, but you can kick you in the guts. Uh, you keep getting up, and I see you regularly at Cup time. Uh, we're both Melbourne Cup ambassadors, and it's a great gig to have because you love talking about this fabulous race. But I see you, and I see your battle, and um, I just love the way that uh, you keep, you know, you, you're so positive about life and. Uh, Thanks for spending time with us because you, you're etched in stone now, mate, uh, in the history books as a Melbourne Cup winning rider and, and your career has been a great one. And really appreciate your time.
3: I oh, thank you, Brian. Uh, i like to appreciate your help and your support. And, uh, you know, it's just a wonderful game, the racing game. I really do think we've seen the best of it. Yep. Uh, some great, great times uh, in the past. But anyway, hopefully uh, things are ongoing and this Melbourne Cup um, ambassadors that we are it really gets, to get around and see people that you might never ever see again and promote the most wonderful day in Australian racing and probably even the world racing now. The world stops for the Melbourne Cup and to say that we've been part of it and be a winner is just a, a wonderful thing.
2: Well, you're a true champion and on the 17th of December before Christmas, I'm going to toast and raise a glass to you, mate, as you turn 60.
3: I appreciate that, mate.
2: On RSN 927, we're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup, Australia's greatest race. On February 21st, 1998, top Queensland jockey Larry Olsen announced his retirement from race riding. In June that year, he turned 50. Larry had won the great race, the Melbourne Cup, in 1987 on Kenzo.
0: Kenzai also pushing up near the rails. Empire Rose call on for effort. regimental marks into the picture. The Brotherhood, our Palliser and Darius spun 300 metres to go and it's Belciano fighting it out with Empire Rose. Agent provocative, Kenzai and Rosedale. It's Empire Rose, Kenzai, Agent provocative and Rosedale. Kenzai a narrow leader. Kenzai, Laurie Olsen going home best. Kenzai wins from Empire Rose. Rosedale third...
2: Well, a magnificent ride. He uh, he just followed the right one and gave this the, the best ride you'd see in a Melbourne Cup. And uh, what a victory for Larry Olsen, who's now long retired, but uh, is in the history books as a Melbourne Cup winning rider, but a very successful rider in a great career. Great to have a chat with you, Larry. Yes,
1: Brian. Uh, gee, i tell you what, when you hear the, uh, the call, which I don't do except for around this time of the year, it certainly... Uh it certainly stirs you back into, uh, well, what you went through at that particular time in your life. It was uh, it was life-changing.
0: Every rider, um,
2: and, and particularly jockeys more than sort of other people, when you talk to them about the Melbourne Cup and what it did to their career and what it did to their life, um, you've ridden fabulous Group 1 winners in Australian racing, but they say that nothing compares to that, that, that great race.
1: No, no, every jockey's dream, of course, is to win a race like that. I would never ever thought I I could do it, Brian. Uh, I did have a few rides in it, and I think the closest I came was about uh, fifth or sixth. I rode Battle Heights one year in the uh, heavy track when Vanderham won, and uh, it was quite incredible because uh, he, he was taped on the hind legs because he used to go on, uh, down on his bumpers, and as it rained like the devil that year uh, when he walked into the enclosure they got wet his hind uh, tapes and uh, throughout the race they come undone so much so that they when they unraveled they actually hobbled his hind legs and i uh, wonder what was going on with the horse that uh, anyway he pulled up and it was just like uh, i thought he was broken down but anyway when i got off and i noticed that, uh the elastoplast was wrapped around one another, and uh, so there you go. But uh, getting back to Ken's eye, um, I never dreamt that I thought that um, I could ever win a race like the Melbourne Cup. It was a a dream from a very young age. I can remember um, watching the Melbourne Cup at school, not watching the Melbourne Cup, but listening to the Melbourne Cup on on the radio at school. So uh, uh, when it came about... um, and for what's followed since, uh, you know, you've got it till you die, mate.
2: <laughs> no doubt about that. And it was a beautiful story to uh, the late syndicator, Harry Lawton, who I knew well. And he was a friend of so many people in racing and brought thousands of people into racing through his syndications. It was so affordable. He He purchased the horse for $15,000. And the horse was raced by a team of battlers. Um, he was no star, Kenzai. He's trained by Les Bridge, who, who's been in the press, of course, and a, a great horseman with a classic legend and, and horses like that, and Sir Dapper, and, you know, he's no mug, Les, is he?
1: We had a wonderful relationship, Brian. Um, it was actually, I give racing and for three years, and uh, I, uh, I I come back to riding, and, of course, I didn't realise that you know, with the weight loss and then the fitness program that I was on that I was able to, well, get back. And I won the uh, the Queensland Derby and actually I did a, a, a piece with Wayne Wilson uh, that Les saw on video and saw where I'd like to come back to Sydney again. So Les got on the phone and rung me and he said, mate, he said, I'm coming up to Brisbane with a horse called Kenzai for the Tats Cup. He said, uh, would, you, would you like to come down and ride for me down here? He said, he said, "Well, he said uh, we'll just sort of see how it works out." He said, "You can run off me, and everything works out good. We'll see how it goes." But I, I didn't ride him in the tats Cup To our comedy, wrote him in that, and uh, he won that. But after that, I uh, I did ride him in a race at Durban, and then of course uh, he uh, he went to uh, he went out the Grafton. I won the Grafton Cup on him, and from there on, you know we went on through to the Melbourne Cup, and it wasn't until uh, I rode him in the Metropolitan uh, for Les, and he drew wide, and I think Peter Cook was on Balciano out there with me, and Cook said to me in the barrier, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'll let you know about 100 yards down there. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to give too much away. Yeah. Anyway, he went forward, I went back, and um, anyway, the long and the short of it was, Kenzo got into the race, Balciano went forward, and... Uh, He won the race, but I I, I finished it off quite well when I pulled up after, up at the, the, um, out the straight at Ramwick there. And I pulled up and he he wouldn't have blown a candle out. And I come back to Les and I said, Les, I've slaughtered this horse. I said, I should have put him into the race. He said, Mate, he said, well, he ran two miles. I said, yes. He said, well, we're off to the cup. And that's when it was really decided then that he would go there. And of course, he had one run. In the uh, in the uh, McKinnon Stakes, uh, Paddy Hyland wrote him that because I was suspended. And yeah, I think he'd run about a nice fifth or sixth. And uh, then, of course, I come back in after suspension and I come back in on Monday night,
3: Gee. just
1: before the Melbourne Cup. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we are cutting things a bit fine. <laughs> and uh, But I, I was blessed because in the race I drew quite well and I was alongside of Empire Rose, and she was a huge mare,
2: mm-hmm.
1: huge, you know. A,
2: massive backside, uh, yes.
1: Massive backside, <laughs> yes, yes. I wasn't going to but anyway, yes. <laughs> and I saw plenty of it through the race, and it was amazing because I got in behind her, and uh, what I had to do with Ken's eye is he could tug a bit, you know, and uh, if he saw daylight too soon, well, he'd, he'd tend to sort of go a little bit hard, but when I got in behind her and uh, a lot of, quite a lot of jostling was going on throughout the race, but they were just bouncing off her, and I was getting a lovely run back inside. But anyway, you notice sort of uh, at the mile where the pace picks up a bit, and at the 1,200, to six furlongs, it picks up again, and then by the time they get the half mile, they're getting a bit serious, coming up towards the corner, and those that are in want to get out, and those that are out, they're trying to hold you in. And uh, But I had... Um, Uh, I had uh, Empire Rose and Rosedale, Johnny Marshall and Rosedale, and they both went forward into the race, 600. He eased out and went forward. uh, I couldn't go with him because I thought if I got out at that time and went into the race too soon, uh, he may not see the two mile out. You know, So I preferred to stay on the fence. And uh, anyway, you wouldn't believe it. Darren Biedman was up in front of me or not. horse called Scarville as I can still see sort of cream and brown silks and uh, you wouldn't believe it he uh, his horse moved off the fence in the straight and I always made the statement it was just like the parting of the Red Sea for me <laughs> and uh, and he left me a beautiful run right through on the inside and, and that certainly did win the race for me there's no risk on that you know um But um, by the time he hit the line, he'd had enough. And uh, it's not until you get, you know, 50 yards or so past the post that all of a sudden it just hits you, uh, that you've won the race, won, won the Melbourne Cup. And then, of course, once you pull up and that, you just overcome with not exhaustion, but you can hardly breathe and choking up feeling. It was just amazing, you know, and then coming back to scale and, and the reception that you get, Brian, that doesn't happen too often in, in anything in life. No. And, and it was our traditional race, the Melbourne Cup, and the crowds. We won't see them this year, but by oh, g um, Oh, well, it's a dream.
2: And, and you know, it, with the crowd, it doesn't matter whether it's 100 to 1 or whether it's, uh, well, it was 12 to 1 with Ken Zio, whether it's a favourite, it's just the euphoria of people being involved, 100,000 people, the cheering, the, and then probably later you think, gee, I wonder how many people have been watching this around the world they have just seen me win our greatest race. And the amazing thing about the um, the 87 Cup was, and I, I can't get my head around this, Larry, at 17 you weighed, you're an apprentice jockey, at 17 you weighed 58 and a half. Um, when you won the Cup in 1987... You rode at 51 and a half. What happened there? Where, where did the seven kilos go?
1: <laughs> there was a lot more than seven, I'll tell you. <laughs> I, get, I kept riding away for three years.
2: Yeah, I've I know. You went to a dairy there. farm, didn't yeah. you?
1: Yeah, I had a dairy farm up in northern New South Wales. And uh, anyway, when I finished, uh, I sold the dairy farm, moved to Brisbane, my wife life the salary business which we had there. And anyway, it was when I was out, I decided to, you know, I lived about eight kilometres from the shop, so I decided to walk in and walk home, that sort of thing. And uh, that's the time I, I sort of saw where the weight scales have been raised. But I did keep riding away. And as I say, I never got on a horse for three years. But when I made the comeback, I did all sorts of things. But I I, I stopped weighing when I got to about to, uh, 70... 76, 77 kilos or something like that, you know. But uh, I followed all sorts of diets and everything, but um, uh, the running and, and, and that got me back. And um, I, uh, by the time I got to, uh, it was, uh, I started, I remember Kenny Russell and Neil Williams, both passed now. We were up at Caloundra and uh, so it was a function. It was in June, July. And uh, they said, what are you doing, mate? And I said, I'm thinking about making a comeback. And they, they laughed at me, you know, because as big as I was, you know. Yeah. And by Christmas, I was down to 51 kilos.
2: Gee.
1: So, yeah, I lost a lot. I I, I I, give up smoking the whole lot, you know, And I was on a little bit of a, you know, a little bit, but I was just uh, become a bit of a fitness guru. And then. A bloke picked me up after that, a fellow called Ron Johnson, he's made his name through various jockeys, yeah. and uh, he said, I read where you made a comeback, he said, you uh, so I can get you three times stronger and, uh, and five pound lighter, and I said, oh, you know, so anyway, he devised a fitness program and a little bit more of the uh, brown rice diet and everything like that to follow, it. but of course, you know, you had to be very uh, disciplined in what you did, and but I started back riding at the Gold Coast, and uh, I started riding a couple of winners there. And then, of course, I, uh, I I come into town and started riding doubles and things like that. But uh, but one bloke that also helped me a lot through this was Pat Duff. He was a bloke that I went to and started riding work for, and he put me on horses. Uh, you know, before I was ready to ride in races, and he put me on a couple up a gap. That sort of got me going, so yeah. I'd a like lot to thank Pat for. But um, 1963
2: hit... at Gatton was your first ride, is it right?
1: Uh, I think I, my first winner was at Gatton.
2: Yeah,
0: but it
1: wouldn't have been long after that. Yeah, yeah. That's but, it. No, I uh, I just turned 15 when I had my first ride in a race at Canterbury in Sydney, and I was apprenticed to Mel Barnes at the time, and uh, and I remember Darby McCarthy was apprenticed in the stable, same stable at the time we went in the jockey's room and he took me in and introduced me to all the jockeys. Well, and George Moore, Apple Mully,
0: <laughs> Jackie
1: Thompson, Gee. God, all them. Blo- Des Lake was up there riding at that time too, but it was just something like uh, you walked into heaven, you know. And, and
2: when you mention those names, how did they take to a... A young kid coming in like they were as tough as boots. George Moore, Ethel Muddy—they used to actually punch him in the jockeys' room, didn't they?
1: Well, there was a little bit of progression there. I never <laughs> actually saw that. But, Did, uh,
2: were you accepted?
1: Yeah, they good?
2: were. you accepted by these guys?
1: Yeah, well, I—I I, I was actually. It was amazing uh, that the people that I, the Derby introduced me to. Derby was always held in very high esteem, yes, too.
3: Yeah, yeah. Bear in
1: mind, and of course, I was used sort to. Of, I was in the same stable, a bit an underling as such, and Darby was, was helped me a lot through my apprenticeship in writing. He wrote a lot of work and things like that together. But no, I was very well received. And um, But I can remember blokes who, who was writing at the time was uh, Mickey Hood, Maxie Lee, mm. old Maxie Lee. Yeah. You know, I don't know whether you, you, you can sort remember of...
2: remember Max the them. trainer,
1: yeah. That's him, yeah, yeah, Maxie. Well, he was writing. Is that right? Yeah. He was riding, yeah, They're going back a while, aren't
2: we? Yeah, Chris is. Uh, but, um, Chris is dead,
1: yeah. I, I run fourth, and this race was a nine furlongs and 63 yards or something. Canterbury started at the top of the And I run fourth, it was 33 to 1. And uh, I remember my boss said to me, he said, Where'd well, you learn to pull a whip like that? You know, give it, you know you pull the whip, give it a couple of hits, and put it away. He said, Why didn't you keep using it? I said, No, Darby told me not to. He said, Give it a couple of hits, put it away, and start riding hands and and But oh, I I was lucky through my life. Apart from being heavy in that brine, I always linked with uh, good horses. I was able to get on a good horse from time to time, and and it sort of kept me in, uh, kept me in racing.
2: Gee, that's an understatement. You rode Gunsin, the Great Grave from Gun to Windy.
1: Yes, I won six races on Gunsin, and. Uh, I lost the ride only when he went to Tommy Smith but um, I when I when Sid Brown Sid Brown uh, bought Triton up to Brisbane that was in 72 uh, not the time I was not going to give it away to and uh, I think Roy Higgins Peter Cook was suspended Roy Higgins uh, preferred to ride one of Bart's and uh, they come chasing me for the ride on Triton which I won on him just got beaten in the 10,000, went back to Sydney and I often chat with uh, Sid that uh, he was instrumental in me coming back to Sydney early too, you know. So uh, I rode good horses like Triton for him and I won the Epsom and, and Gunsend. and I... Uh, well, Gunsend and Triton, the two of them, got together all the way up the straight at Ramwick. It was a head and head go and I finished up, I got him. So... But, oh, he was a great horse,
2: guns And there was a wonderful uh, weight-for-age horse I remember growing up, uh, listening to on the radio. He was trained out of Bendigo here, and he went to Queensland. He was a terrific weight-for-age horse up there called Winfra, and the same down here in Victoria. He's a top caliber
1: Oh, Brian, I you know what I was lucky, particularly in my apprenticeship years, that I was able to get on horses like this. Now, let me cast you... Do this... Okay, we'll get on to the I rode him as a seven-pound allowance boy. Mm. But, you know, early in the piece, I was a boy of about 14. I just... I, bear in mind, I could ride gallops on Nochi Beach when I was 12 years of age. And uh, when, I got 14, when I was 14, I was able to be registered to ride on the tracks, you know, and I was riding work at Eagle Farm. And this horse, they asked me... They were looking to work two horses together Called um, sometime. Yeah,
0: yeah. Remember, remember.
1: The, he won a Caulfield the,
2: the, Cup. Yeah,
1: won a Caulfield yeah. Cup, and 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 I rode him work. I rode him work in, uh, at Eagle Farm.
2: Yes.
1: And uh, oh, gee, what a beautiful horse! And from a very early age, I, I you know, you get that feeling for horses mm-hmm. and what they do underneath you. And he, he, he. I never forgot. the a beautiful. Long neck, beautiful stride, and I tell you who I rode. work with was uh, uh, was Pyers. Pyers came up in riding.
2: Billy Pyers. After
1: yeah. Billy Pyers, the poet with the Colgate smile. Yep. <laughs> and I think Brian used to, <laughs> Bert used to call him that. But then I, I uh, this horse came up to Brisbane, um, Winfro. He was a stable mate of a horse called Captain Blue. That's right. I don't know whether you remember it. Yes, I do. And yeah. and anyway, uh, he was in a welter at Eagle Farm, and I had seven pound allowance, and they got me to ride him, and I and I'd ridden, I'd been riding him work and everything. And I said to my boss, smell Barnes, I said, "This horse can win the Stradbroke. This horse, you know." And uh, this is after I won on him. Uh, he won the welter, won by about three lengths, and he did. He came out, he won the strap rope um WA Smith rating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he won the ten thousand and I think he was beaten a lip in the a Cup all in the one year. Mm. But oh, God, what a and he was a he was an angular type of horse, goose neck type of thing. But oh couldn't he gallop mate. He had a stride a, a wonderful big stride, I mean, you know, and a, and the, see these things stick in your mind. Like I'm seventy two now and I can still remember that uh, at, at that early age, you know? Yeah, and
2: I reckon yeah. I uh, there was a fellow from Bendigo trained him, a very good horseman called Mick Wilson and That's him. He, That's him. I reckon yeah, he used Mick to wear Blue. bandages yeah. a lot when froe and Captain Blue was about the same, stable mate.
1: Yes, he was and uh, Captain Blue actually didn't come forward as much as Brinfro at that time, but he uh, uh, I think he was taken over by his owner later on mm-hmm. Mick Wilson, as you say, trained him, but Viv Hodge was a bloke's
2: name. Yes. Yeah, that's I'm true.
1: certain that that's yeah. right. And I think he finished up, he trained him after that. But, God, what a good horse, mate. He he, he he won in Sydney and everywhere. Gee, a good horse.
2: Now, we spoke earlier on the program in the history of the Melbourne Cup talking about you know, that, that, that great moment, winning the, winning the race. And I spoke with uh, Wayne Harris. And Wayne Harris, of course, won on Jeanne. But he also said probably the greatest thrill in racing outside the Melbourne Cup was winning on Century Miss and winning the Golden Slipper. And you've done something similar in winning on Star Watch for a TJ Smith, winning the Slipper.
1: Yeah, I did. And that came after the Melbourne Cup, well, yeah. basically the one racing year. But uh, I won the Cup in 87 and the, um, and, the and the Slipper in 88. Um now, that was for Tommy Smith. I rarely rode for him, but Nick but disqualified. But not disqualified. So he got suspended yep. coming into the race, and that's how I picked the ride up, because for Les Bridge, uh, Les was training for a bloke called Brian Ewell, who was He was the principal behind Tullock Lodge, if you remember at that's that right. time. yes, With I all do. All those big syndications. Well, you know about the syndications yep. and that. And um, anyway, uh, as I say, Brian Ewell was instrumental in me getting the ride. Now I'd never got on, I'd never got on uh, uh, that horse before or even after the Golden Slipper Star Watch. Um, uh, he drew wide. It was on a heavy track, and Greg Hall was alongside of me on Zeditive, if I remember rightly. Yeah. And anyway. I just wondered what I was, was going to do because Gregory was outside of me and I thought to myself, he's a horse, my horse sort of gets into it a bit. So I thought, whatever happens, I said, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to keep Gregory one more wider than me, whatever I am. But as we, we'd we gone about oh, oh, only a couple of furlongs and anyway, uh, I was three wide, but I had uh, you know two horses inside of me and keeping him Bit firm inside, you know, and I heard this call inside of me and it was saying, Lazar, Lazar, <laughs> Lazar, and, and I looked at, looked inside and it was Jimmy Cassidy. Jimmy was on the favourite, comely girl. Yeah. And I thought, How good's this? I've got him tied up in there and Gregory I don't know where Gregory is, but he's if he comes I can cart him another wide one wide around the corner, you know, or whatever, you know. With Jimmy in there, I thought, that's good. Now, I didn't see Greg at any stage throughout the race, but then as we come around the corner, I purposely held held back and, and held him in there as long as I could. And then I took off, and actually he came out and came after me, but it was too late. I had the race won. So basically, me knowing that Jimmy was inside of me um, helped me win that race. But I never I never got on the horse after that. Um, and you know, so uh, as I say, uh, I suppose if I was lucky in any way as a jockey, I had a pretty fair affinity with horses, and I I, I was I, I pretty well able to spot in horses. Um, uh, you know, certain things about them. I often thought that if uh, you know, got on a horse and. Rode him around the enclosure, take him out in the track, and go around beyond the barrier. I could nearly sit down and write a full scat page on him. <laughs>
2: That's so, so Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I think you needed to, like, the understanding of the horse and and everything like that, Brian. And I, and I, I was, you know, I loved horses, and that was my life. But, um, I think that helped me a hell of a lot.
2: Larry, you're obviously a keen observer of, of racing. It's it's twenty four seven now. You must see a difference between what you grew up with and around you as far as horsemen and jockeys go. Uh, once, most were, were were the one unit, horseman and jockey, but it seems to be separated now.
1: Yeah, Brian, I think a lot of things have changed a lot. Um, some good, some maybe not so good, but I, I, I think I was blessed, uh, you know, racing in those days. And with the, the jockeys, trainers, everything involved, you know, it was, uh, uh, I think we saw the best of it, but mm. still uh, racing is a wonderful, uh, you know, pastime for people. Like, you know, you see it in your people, the syndicates and that. I play with people, play golf with a couple of people who are in syndicates and God, it's their life, you know. Yes, exactly. they they've got businesses and that, but oh, gee. It's their whole life, and it's not hard to get caught up in that, but getting back to what you're saying about the people involved, um, gee, I, I saw some great riders, some great trainers, but I rode them all, you know. Uh, I rode well over in England. Lester Piggott looked after me when I was over there. I rode him against him in mm. Singapore, here in Australia. Well, you know, you had them all down there, like Higgins and Co. And... Uh, uh, in Sydney where well, we had more latter day the Dippmans but you've had some great riders in, in Victoria. And it was great rivalry, you know, a, some of the best times we ever had, Brian, was was going down to Melbourne for the for the cup and we were down there for that two or three weeks through the cup period. We link up with blokes like Greg Hall and Shane Dye, Kenny Russell, Roder right mm-hmm. Fielders us. we used to link up and I. Oh, They were wonderful times. So if people can experience what we went through,
2: racing will always be at the forefront. Nice way to end it, Larry. Your last ride was in February 1998. Uh, You retired with over 1,000 winners. You took three years off. You uh, did an amazing thing with your weight. I think you lost close to 26 kilos when you you came back. But... um, you did it all, and the most important thing is uh, you won the greatest race uh, on our calendar and one of the great races of the world.
1: Without a doubt, Brian, without a doubt. And uh, it's not long before it's going to be on us again. Yep. And uh, it certainly will all be on our toes watching it again. It's, it's, it's a wonderful event. And, oh, it's just... Well, I'm just blessed. I'm blessed that I, I was able to win it.
2: Fantastic to talk with you. Take care.
1: Thanks, Brian.